Yeah, if I'm ever introduced as Dr. Strobeck, you've got to remember something. It's not a doctorate of theology, so you can all relax. Okay, we're going to talk about something practical today. We're going to talk about what's in a name. Now, we're not going to be talking about names of the Old Testament for God. We're going to stay mainly in the New Testament, mainly in the book of Luke. And for your purists out there, you're going to like this sermon because it's a three-point sermon. And everybody knows that the best sermons have three points. Now, the points I put up here are in the form of a question. So the first point are, are Bible names important? The second point is, if important, are they mildly important, moderately, or extremely important? And if you say they're extremely important, will that affect how I behave in the future? Because if I can't affect what you're thinking or how you're acting, then it's not a sermon, it's just a talk. So hopefully you'll change what you think. So go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Luke, chapter 1. Now the book of Luke starts out with talking about names, and it ends up with a blessing. So the first chapter, are names important? Last chapter, blessings. So while you're looking up there, let's have some just basic things. Why do we have names? And the first reason we have a name is to identify ourselves, to set us apart from everybody else. If there's somebody gets hurt on a football field and they say, will you come down here and help, the whole audience is going to come down. But by specifying somebody by name, hopefully you'll get the right person down there. We also identify people by their families, by their last name. Oh no, it's a Kuykendall. Got to be worried about those boys. These two, father and daughter, you wouldn't need a name. You could tell they're so much alike. Also, names declare our position in life. This is Prince Harry. He's the Duke of Sussex. He's sixth in line to the King of England, as if anybody cares. Maybe if you're British, you might care. Sometimes people only have one name. Now, do you know who... I know there's a pointer on here somewhere. Do you know who the bottom left is? Pele, one of the best football players. Bottom right, if you're a Gen Z or Gen I, do you know who that is? Beyonce. If you're a baby boomer, top right. Oh man, I got a lot of shares on there. And if you're my generation, the gentleman in the middle, that would be Socrates. Or as we used to call him, Sock. He didn't like that name too much though. And sometimes you're given a name to make you tough. A gentleman knew he wouldn't be around to watch his son grow up. He wouldn't be there to make him tough, so he named him Sue, a boy named Sue. And finally, later on in life, Sue found his father in a bar in a honky-tonk, goes up to him and says, what? How do you do? My name is Sue. Now you're going to die for naming me Sue. And sometimes you're given a middle name. And what's the purpose of a middle name? Yeah, so you know when you're really in trouble. Michael, William, you get over here. And sometimes a child is named in haste with regret later. <laughs> Roger and... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not that close of a friend with these people. But, but they've decided to name their newborn... That isn't born yet, yeah. Cornelius, that's right. He's going to be known as Cornelius or Corncob. And sometimes we give names to deceive. 
right? I used to work in the STD clinic for Cook County. Now, if you're not familiar with Illinois, Cook County is the county that Chicago is in. And we used to work there moonlighting when I was a resident. And this one woman came in, and her last name was Eggs. Middle name was And, and first name was Ham. Yes, that's right, her name was Ham and Eggs. A name to deceive. I didn't ask her if that was her real name, I just assumed it wasn't. Sometimes names foreshadow, they tell of things going to come in the future. I would imagine most people, if they haven't read it, have heard of Moby Dick and Captain Ahab in Moby Dick. And when the protagonist of the story, the good guy, Ishmael, which means God hears, finds out for the first time that he will be sailing in a boat with a person named Captain Ahab, says, when that wicked king was slain, the dogs, did they not lick his blood? If you remember the story, Ahab in the Bible was killed in his chariot, there was blood on the chariot, and in order to clean the chariot, they had to do something. Now, generally, when you clean something, the cleaning agent is cleaner than what it's being cleaned. And so it was cleaned with Captain Ahab's blood by the dogs, which was a very dirty animal to the Jews, licked the blood, and then they poured water that was in a pool that only prostitutes bathed in. And that's the way they cleaned the chariot of Ahab. So you can tell, as soon as you got the name Ahab, you should be scared, because you know something bad is going to happen. And the boatmates of Ishmael said, don't worry about it. Captain Ahab didn't name himself. Somebody else named him. But it didn't make a difference. If you're on the boat with Ahab, you know something bad is going to happen. And since we're talking about Ahab, let's talk about his wife, Jezebel. The proper name for Jezebel, nobody's certain where it came from. But there is a very similar name, which means Baal exalts. That's a Philistine false god. And so the Jews, not wanting to even mention the name of Baal, probably intentionally altered the name to Jezebel so they wouldn't have to say Baal. And names can often lead to tragedy. I'm going to read an excerpt from a book. Don't shout out if you know the book, and I want to see how many people know it. "'Tis but thy name, thy name, that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's a Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name?" If you know what book that comes from, I want you to raise your hand. It's a play. That's right, it's, not a, it's a play, and the play is Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And Juliet Capulet wants to marry her boyfriend, Romeo, but the parents are not going to allow it on either side. They're not going to allow it not because they're a different religion, not because they're a different race, not because they're a different nationality, not because of one of them is cisgender. I just threw that in. They're not going to marry because they're different names. And those two families have been feuding because of the name. And so when Juliet says, what is in a name? She then follows that up with probably Shakespeare's most quoted verse in the, all of his plays. And that is, that which we call a rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. Now, is that true? If you named a rose skunk cabbage, would it still smell the same? What about sewage? Maybe not. 
So, we're going to have a debate between Shakespeare on the right and me on the left. And the motion before us is, I'm saying names are extremely important in the Bible. Shakespeare says a rose by any other name would still be a rose. And the moderator? Well, I think that's going to be you guys. You get to decide what you think, which one is more important. So, before we get to the reading, let's start out with a little background. So while you're in the book of Luke, turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. And this will be a preface to what we're going to read about in the Bible. So it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name, were, her name was Elizabeth. And they both were righteous in the sight of God. Now right there, you need to stop. We are going to next week, my wife and I are going to visit a relative in uh, Spokane. And they're just so excited because they want to take us to their new church. And if they said their new church was great music, great teaching, great fellowship, and, and the pastor, he's a Christian, you would stop. You'd say, what? That doesn't make any sense. And here, you know, Luke is telling us there was a certain priest of the temple and he was righteous. You know what that implies? That most of the priests were not righteous. But, but we've got an exception here, folks. Elizabeth and Zacharias, they were righteous people. Now, that's going to come into play a little bit later, so remember that. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child because Elizabeth were, was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now, if you were a Jewish woman, that was a terrible that you could not give your husband a child, especially if you couldn't give him a male child. And so this was to her great shame. Now, it came about, verse 8, while he was performing his priestly service before the Lord in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, this was given by lot. Now, very often, there were so many priests that you wouldn't only get to do this maybe once or twice in your lifetime. So this was very unusual for him. And the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside of the hour of incense. So they can't see what's going on. He's inside. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right of the altar of incense, the right being a very special place. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. Notice how when you see an angel, that's a lot of people's first response. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. It's in a command. You will not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. Now the angel appears, gives them what they want the most, a child, and he has two things that the angel is commanding him to do. One is believe that you're going to have a child, and the second is, you must name him John, okay? Now, if you don't think names are important, he's got two things he's got to remember, and one of them is, he's going to be named John. We'll see how well he does with either one of those commandments. Remember, he was a righteous man. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquid, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's wombs. 
and he will turn back many sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts and fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah says, how shall I know this? Because I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Okay, he's already broken the first one, right? He's not believing the angel. And the angel answered and said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and bring this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place. We also found out later he's deaf. So he's deaf and he's mute for not believing in God. And the people who were waiting for Zacharias were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and he remained mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service ended that he went back home. Now, Zacharias is going to realize shortly that his wife is pregnant. She's going to get big. He's going to feel the baby kick, right? Does he, is he able to speak once he realizes? No. He's not able to, even though the first one has come true, he believes because he sees his wife getting pregnant. We still have the problem with the naming of John. So as is the custom in Calvary, once we go ahead and stand up and we'll read from the book of Luke, verses 59 to 63. And it happened that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. We're talking about John here. And they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, no, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, there was no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to the father as to what they wanted him to be called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once in his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we just pray that you open our minds and our hearts to the things you want us to know and that you'll make them perfectly clear to us. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, you can be seated. So let's go ahead and look at these verses again, but let's look at them in more detail. If your generation X will unpack it, it means the same thing as look it in closer, okay? So when you see red up here, the red is an indication when you read it in the Greek, which words are emphasized, either by where the position of the word is or by the nature of the word itself. The heavier, dark, bold is what I want you to pay attention to, okay? That's the difference between the colors. And so Luke 1.59, and it happened on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. Very common Jewish tradition. You circumcise and you name the child on that day. Before that day, the child doesn't have a name. And they, who is the they? Elizabeth and Zacharias. The parents, right? They, remember it's both of them, were going to call him what? Zacharias. They should have been calling him what? John. But even though they had this vision and the angel spoke to them, they were still going to call him Zacharias. Luke 1.60. Now, usually we read this like it's quick succession, one after the other after the other, but I think there's a pause here. I think what's happening here is the priest is taking the baby, John. He's raising it up and showing the crowd. They're going to name the baby, and he turns to 
Elizabeth and says, and what is the baby's name? Now, Elizabeth knows something's wrong right away, right? Who should have they have turned to and asked what the baby's name was? The father. But the father is deaf and mute. They can't really make sense out of him. So they're turning to her. So she's kind of on the edge right now, right? She knows that the baby was supposed to be called John. She's seen what the angel did to her husband. He can't speak and he can't talk. Now she has a choice. She can end up like her husband or she can change her mind. So I'm sure there's a pause here. She's looking to the priest, looking to the baby, looking to her husband. And finally, she says in verse 60, but his mother answered and said, no, indeed, I've changed my mind. Because remember, she went there planning to name him Zacharias. But his name shall be called John. Now, is there anything wrong with naming your child after a relative? My oldest son, his name is Aaron. His middle name is Michael. My younger son, his middle name is William. My name, right? There's nothing wrong with that unless God tells you something different. And what was the response of the crowd? And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives called by that name. Emphasis on that name. You can name him anything, but let's pick a relative name. And so what did they do? They turned to the father. Okay, we didn't get the answer we wanted. We're going to change it. We're going to go to the father. And so they go to the father, and it says they made signs. And the verb in the Greek means they had to keep doing it over and over and over because he wasn't understanding what was going on. So finally he gets it, and he asks for a tablet. And it's usually a piece of wood with wax on it. Then you'd scratch out what you wanted. And he wrote down this word. His name is John. Remember, he was going to say Zacharias too. And the emphasis is on the John. And what did the people in the crowd think? They were all astonished. We can't believe this is happening. And at once, emphasis at once, Zacharias' mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. The verb tense and speak is kept speaking over and over and over. They couldn't shut him up. No matter what they tried, he kept praising God because he finally had listened to the angel. So what's going on here? Let's take the names. Zacharias is, comes from two parts. Zakar, to remember, Yah is a shortened form of God, Yahweh. And so it means God remembers. Elizabeth, El, like El Shaddai. God, Shaba, is oath. God is an oath. God makes oaths. And John, Yah, we know that before, that's God. Hanan means to be gracious or to show mercy. So God has been gracious or God has shown mercy. So let's put this together. So Zacharias and Elizabeth marry. So God remembers. What is God remembering? His oath. What oath was that? Now this has been the intertestamental period. There hasn't been a prophet for 400 years. And he's remembering. And a lot of people are saying, God, did you forget about us? What about the oaths you made? It's been 400 years. Are you dead or have you just forgotten? And God says, Zacharias and Elizabeth, you must name the child John. Why? Because it means God has been gracious. God's mercy. God remembers. And I remember what I promised you. I remembered that I would send you a savior. And that's why it's important that it had to be named John. You don't believe me? Read further on in the book of John. 
And as he, he being God, as God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation, salvation from what? From our enemies, from the hand of all who hates us. Who hates you? The devil. And you salvation from the devil to show mercy, that's John, toward our fathers and to remember that Zacharias, his holy covenant or his holy oath, that's Elizabeth, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. I know that's a lot to take in, but that's why God insisted that his name be John for that very f- reason. Now, what's the usual way that a baby would be named? You can see this is a very Jewish baby, blonde hair, curly, <laughs> light skin. Isn't Jesus always pictured that long hair, blonde hair, you know? I always thought that was funny. So the Hebrew to the Jew is considered the holy tongue. When God said in Genesis 1-3, let there be light, did he say it in English? No. He said it in Hebrew. So the Jewish mind thinks that all things are affected by their Hebrew name. And when parents name a child with a Hebrew name, there's a little bit of divine influence that goes on in there. Now, the baby is named, as we saw with John, at circumcision eight days after birth. And additionally, in addition, if it's a first baby out of the womb, the Jews would call that opening of the womb. So if the womb is opened and the first baby to come out is a live-born male, it goes through an additional ceremony called the ceremony, or excuse me, the redemption of the firstborn. Okay, now if the firstborn out of the womb is a woman, then this does not apply. Even when the second baby is a boy, it doesn't apply. It only applies to the firstborn out of the womb if it's a male. Ceremony is performed 30 days after the baby is born. Usually there's a sacrifice to God, a lamb. But if you're poor, another substitute can be made. Usually some money is given to the priest. And the ceremony includes, get this now, washing, eating bread, and drinking wine. What does that remind you of? The Last Supper, where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, they ate bread, and they drank wine out of the cup of redemption. And so this, even though it was done to signify the redemption when God took the Jews out of Egypt, remember there was the angel that passed over? And God said, I'm going to redeem my firstborn. If you put the blood on the doorpost, your Jewish babies will not be affected. But every other firstborn is going to suffer the judgment. And so it's the ceremonies that the Jews to remember the redemption from the Egyptians. But we can also see the Last Supper. And the Last Supper is where we get communion from. So did Jesus go through this ceremony? So in Luke 2.21, and when the eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name, okay, we'll get back to that. His name was Jesus. We know at his circumcision, they didn't say he was Jesus. His name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for the purification, that's those 30 days we were talking about, the law of Moses was completed. They brought him up to Jerusalem and presented him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to the law of Moses. Now his parents were poor, they couldn't afford the lamb, so they gave the two turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Jesus actually went through this. 
But we know Jesus isn't his name. So what was the name of Jesus? Jesus is the English, but we get that from a Middle English Anglo-Saxon name, which got it from a Latin name, which got it from a Greek name, which got it from a Hebrew name. So if we go backwards, the, Greek, the Jewish name is Yeshua or Yohashua. A little bit different, and you'll see different people will say different things. And basically, it has the concept of God, and it has the concept of salvation. God and salvation. So what is your name for God? Is it God is a salvation? Do you think that God is the salvation? Or is your idea God is my salvation? Because what you think of that for a name is going to influence how you treat God. Is God a salvation? In the broadest sense, yes, he is a salvation. But is he more than that? Yes, God is the salvation. I am the way, the truth, the light. Nobody comes to the Father but me. But can you even go a little bit deeper than that and say, God is my salvation? And do we see that anywhere in the Bible? And I think we do. We see it in John chapter 20, verses 11 to 13. Mary Magdalene comes to the, that comes to the tomb comes to the tomb after uh, Jesus has been crucified to find the body. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, and the verb there is sobbing hysterically, had to struggle to get a breath she was weeping so hysterically. She stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, "'Woman, why are you weeping?' I don't think this is a rhetorical question. I think this is a legitimate question. I think the two angels were in the tomb high-fiving each other. Hey, Jesus is gone. This is great. They're having a party, and she's weeping. And they say, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord. You understand the difference there? This isn't a Lord. This isn't the Lord. They have taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. So if I was to ask Mary Magdalene, Is God a salvation? Is God the salvation? Or is God your salvation? What do you think she would tell me? But can a name by itself ever be totally sufficient? Can you just name the names of God and that means you have a relationship, you understand the essence of God? There are 198 names and titles of Jesus. In Isaiah, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. We see that on Christmas cards all the time. Will knowing all 198 titles get you that much closer to God? Because the titles of God just represents his attributes. It doesn't recover his essence, what's going on with him. So I think we can figure out how to get closer to God's essence. And that's at the very last part of Luke. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to the last chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 24. And these are the very last four verses in Luke. So keep turning to Luke chapter 24, verse 40. Now, a little background information. So at this point, Jesus has been crucified. He's dead, but he's showed himself to people along the road. And he's shown himself and actually had some food and ate with people. And he's presented himself to the 11 disciples. And he was in Jerusalem at the time. And he leaves Jerusalem and he's going, it says, to Bethany. Now, why is that important? going to Bethany. What happened in Bethany? Lazarus was raised from the dead. And so he's taking them out of Jerusalem, symbolically saying, we're not going to keep this religion here in Jerusalem. 
we're going to take it outside of Jerusalem and spread it to the world. And he takes them out of Jerusalem, and they're walking down the path toward Bethany, where he showed people that he had conquered death. And it says, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. So this is very rabbinical. You lift up your hands to give person a blessing. Now, is this just a standard blessing? Bless you, my children, go in peace. Or is this a very special blessing? One that the Jews would have understood, but you probably wouldn't because you're not Jewish. Now, I can't point to a verse in the Bible that says this is a special blessing, but let me give you the reasons why I believe it is. So twice a year at the Wailing Wall, they'll come together and this blessing will be pronounced on the nation of Israel. On the left is what the Wailing Wall usually looks like. The times I've been there, it's a little bit busier than this, but not too much busier. The one on the right is the two days in a year when this blessing is given. And it's estimated that probably close to 100,000 people will show up. Okay, that's more than the Super Bowl. Okay, it's that important to the Jewish mind. That's why when I say Jesus, the rabbi, raised his hand and gave these blessings. Because what's going to happen? You'll see here in just a few verses, he's gone. This is his last chance to make an impression on his disciples. His last chance to show the essence of who he is. The last chance when he doesn't say, these are just my attributes. He can say, this is me. And you can be honored to say, God is my salvation. Jesus is my salvation. And this blessing is read in every Jewish synagogue at every service in Israel. And the blessing comes from Numbers 6, through 27. And it's known as the Aaronic Benediction, or also Aaron's blessing, or the pastoral blessing, or the pastoral benediction. So God gave to Moses a blessing that he was to share with Aaron, and Aaron was to share with the people. It was a blessing for the nation of Israel. And the blessing has three parts to it. And most of you have heard this before. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So why would 100,000 people show up just for this blessing? Let's see what it means. The blessing is in three parts. The first part of it is a physical blessing. The second part is a mental and emotional blessing. And the last part of it is the highest blessing that you could give if you were a Jewish person. So it says, the Lord bless you. The word bless comes from the word to kneel. And it has in its concept, God kneeling down from heaven, taking the Ten Commandments and giving it to Moses. The word bless or kneel for Jesus was when he was washing the feet of his disciples. He would kneel down and wash their feet. Keep you, the word keep comes from a a description of a hedge of thorns where they would make this hedge and that's where the sheep would stay at night so the wolves wouldn't get to them. So the Lord kneeling down to help you, humbling himself to become your friend and then hedging you around in this thorny enclosure to keep out the wolves. And it says, and the Lord make his face shine upon you. The face is plural. The face is plural. 
Why? Because to the Jewish mind, it wasn't just the face. It was everything in his makeup. It was everything that was about him is his face. It's not just his physical face. It was actually his entire being. It says, his face shine upon you. Why shine? Because out of light, you change the chaos and the darkness into something that is worthy to have. And it says, and be gracious to you. Gracious, mercy. Don't remember the bad things I've done. Show me compassion. And then the final blessing, the Lord lift up his countenance. The same word is used for face that's used for countenance. It's the same word. It's not a different word. So everything about Jesus is, when he was saying this blessing, he was telling the people that God wants to share his essence with you. And it says in the final thing, and give you peace. Now, peace is not just the absence of war. It's not the absence of strife. Peace to a Jewish mind comes from the word shalam, which means to make restitution, to make things right again. Remember when the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were there and God was there and everything was good? To say peace is restoring you to that original relationship with God. And that's why it's the highest blessing you can have to a person. I'm just not wishing that you're happy. I'm trying to get you to restore that relationship before sin entered into the world. So how do we get to those things? Well, Paul knew. He said it in Romans. He said, therefore, being justified, being made right with God, and how do we make right with God? By faith, we have peace. We have that getting back to the original relationship you had with Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the ironic benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you, kneel down, protect you. The Lord make his face, his essence, shine upon you and be merciful to you. The Lord lift up his face on you and give you that original relationship that you once had. And how are we going to do this? So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel. Which name? Is it A or is it the or is it my? And I will bless them. So we had the three-point sermon. Let's see how good we did with our three points. Number one, our Bible name's important. I think probably I convinced everybody here that they're important. If important, are they mildly, moderately, or extremely? Well, certainly to Elizabeth and Zacharias, they were extremely important. And if you're sitting here and you're saying, God is my salvation, then I think you're going to say it's extremely important. And then the last point, if they're extremely important, will that affect how I behave in the future? I can't answer that for you. That's something you're going to have to answer for yourself. But I do want to tell you one thing. With the last one comes a warning. Be careful if you say, Jesus is my salvation, because it has certain implications you may not prepare for. You remember the movie A Few Good, I think it was A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise, where the general gets up there, the truth, you can't handle the truth. Well, here, if you say Jesus is my salvation, you're not going to be happy with that. You're going to want to take it further. You're going to want that benediction in your life where it says, bless you and keep you. And you're going to go after that. And when God shows you what his essence really is, it may have consequences you're not prepared to handle. 
You might start attending church. No, I don't mean on Sunday. I mean on Thursday night. That's scary, isn't it? I work 10 hours and I have to go to church on a Thursday night? That's way too much to ask. I might end up going to Sunday school, adult Sunday school after class here. You realize by the time I get out of adult Sunday school, it's going to be one o'clock in the afternoon and half the day is shot? Do you understand what you're asking? Whoops. You might ask to be joining a home group. You know, every home group has people in it that just kind of, you know, get you. Now, next time I go to home group, I'm going to have everybody in my home group come up to me. Was I the one? No, no, my home group is perfect. You might be tempted to join a woman's study. I got to leave this thing alone. To join a woman's study. You realize those women are going to realize how little you know about the Bible if you go to a Bible study? I'm not going to go there. I'm going to be embarrassed. Yeah, you might end up, I might end up seeing you over at the church library. Let's see, the cafe has cookies, the library has books. Uh, I don't know about this one. You might volunteer at children's church or at Sunday school. You know how many germs a kid carries in his mouth? And they're going like this and they're all, no, no. No, it shouldn't happen. Show up for work days, don't worry about it. A lot of people will show up. They won't notice if you're not there. You know what I mean? Pray with your kids. Gosh, don't do it. Really, don't do it. As soon as you start praying with your kids, you might even tell your kids you did something wrong and asking them to, to forgive you. Not a good idea. And what about treating your wife better? I can do work on that. I work on that, I think, every day. Yeah, and it's not easy. You know what I mean? Humbling yourself. So be careful if you say, Jesus is my salvation, because these things, wait, yeah, way too much to do. Okay, let's go ahead and stand up for a word of prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, our prayer should always be that you would continuing to bless us, that you would make your face shine on us, that you would be merciful to us, that you would turn your face to us and let us know your essence, and that here on earth, even though we'll never be able to totally reach that area we were before, before sin entered into the world, at least we can be closer to that. We just pray that you'd grant us this peace as much as we can. And we thank you for the name of Jesus, which is above all names. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.